there's a feast around me tonight and, and a feast here. Let's, uh, let's open in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this evening. Thank you, uh, Lord, that we can be found in your house to worship you. We thank you for uh, the unity we have in the Spirit. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, as we open your word tonight, we ask uh, that you would uh, make ready our hearts to receive it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Tonight, I want to speak about treasure and trust. Treasure and trust. There was once a missionary that summarized his life's pursuits with this phrase, and you may have heard it. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. In the 1950s, Jim Elliott, along with his fellow missionaries, set out to share the gospel with the unreached tribe of the Huarani people in the Ecuadorian jungles. Jim Elliott left behind comforts of life in America, and Jim chose a life that mattered in eternity over a life that just mattered on earth. His encounter with this tribe was marked by violence and martyrdom, and it might seem like a tragic story, but Jim Elliott's life was no mere earthly success. It was a testimony of commitment and dedication to his Lord. In the face of hardship, Jim Elliott's life reflected Jesus Christ's love for lost souls. He understood that treasures in eternity hold a value that surpasses the fleeting riches of this world. His sacrificial pursuit of heavenly treasures can challenge us today. In a culture consumed by personal gain and material success, we would do well to consider what treasures we are laying up. Are we living for the temporal or the eternal? Jim Elliott's example challenges the idea that it's earthly security and earthly comfort should be our primary pursuit. Instead, his life points to the gospel. Has life, dear brethren, made the gospel deeper and richer to us? Or has it become faded as time has gone by? Our passage of scripture tonight is in Matthew chapter 6. This is right in the middle of Jesus' well-known and well-loved Sermon on the Mount, including the Beatitudes and the Lord's Prayer. Christ's teachings in these chapters cover a wide range of topics, including God's kingdom, including prayer and righteous living. Jesus challenges traditional interpretations of the law, and he emphasizes the importance of the heart, internal attitudes and motivations, not just outward actions. In Matthew 5:21, he says, You've heard that it was said of them of old time, Thou shalt not kill. And then he says, But I say unto you, that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. He also says, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But then he says, That whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. Jesus said as well, Thou shalt love thy neighbour and hate thine enemy. But then he says, Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. 
And here at the opening of chapter 6, Jesus challenges the traditional practice of giving to receive recognition. He speaks of charity with a sincere heart, free from the desire of public approval. But now let's look at verses 19 to 21. And we'll look at treasure. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. So, what is a treasure? I wonder if you have watched Antiques Roadshow. Anyone watch Antiques Roadshow? They bring in a, a whole collection of items and uh, they marvel over it. They talk about how shiny something is and, and, um, and then they give a value, give a value of it. These are people's treasures in their homes and perhaps a lot of them are surprised. Oh, it's uh, 10,000 pounds. I didn't expect that. But uh, treasure e extends just beyond antiques. This English word that we read here in Matthew appears in the Bible over a hundred times. The majority, about 80%, appears in the Old Testament. Here in Matthew 6, we find the English word treasure is translated from the Greek thesauros. Now, you may recognize that we get another English word from this. It's the word thesaurus, a book with a lot of words in it, a book which is a storehouse or a treasure store of words that are to be a great help to a student of English. But that word in the Greek literally means either the place in which good and precious things are laid up or stored, or it could refer to those good and precious things themselves. It speaks of a place or things. A treasure has great value or worth. It goes beyond material possessions and can cover anything that is significant or has meaning to someone. Treasures can take various forms. They could be material. They could be jewelry or art or f family heirlooms or antiques that carry sentimental or monetary worth. But treasures could be experiences. Maybe there are meaningful moments and memories that hold a special place in your heart. Maybe a cherished holiday, a significant life event, shared experiences with loved ones, or relationships, deep connections with family and friends, or they could be your values and principles, core beliefs that guide one's life, influencing decisions and actions. What about time? Time can be a treasure, the precious resource, whether time for yourself or time for others. Treasure could be your skills and talents. In our passage tonight, the meaning of treasure extends beyond the material and encompasses all the priorities that shape our lives. Jesus challenges us to consider where we invest our time, our energy, our resources. Treasures in this context reflect what we hold dear and prioritize in our lives. Treasures that align with God's kingdom they last. Jesus says, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. They are a rich blessing. The treasures of heaven, Jesus tells us, are incorruptible. They are everlasting. They are beyond the reach of decay or theft. They are investments in the eternal, 
where moth and rust doth not dis- destroy or corrupt, and thieves do not break in and steal. In contrast, earthly treasures are fleeting, subject to the effects of time and the uncertainties of life. Isaiah chapter 33 verse 6 says, Wisdom and knowledge shall be the stability of thy times, and strength of salvation. The fear of the Lord is his treasure. The fear of the Lord, a very important phrase. It doesn't speak in any way of some kind of nervous or cowardly fear of God, but it's a very precious word in the Bible. The fear of the Lord is a holy reverence of heart for God. And a holy reverence for God is that which a person's heart will lay up as a precious thing. What a statement. It describes part of that outworking, the change of heart, the change of perspective, the transformation. For Isaiah, those things that are viewed as precious by God now become those same things viewed as precious in your heart. And then he says, the fear of the Lord is his treasure. Back here in Matthew, Jesus is saying the same thing. Our treasures, our precious priorities are tied to our heart. Where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. Whatever occupies our thoughts, whatever we invest our time and energy and resources in, reveals the true condition of our hearts, the true health of our hearts. Having a healthy heart in the spiritual sense impacts how we respond to situations, how we make choices in our lives. It encompasses the purity of our motives, how we align our desires with God's will. Matthew 12:35 says that a good man out of the good treasure of the heart bringeth forth good things. Proverbs tells us we should keep our heart with all diligence for out of it are the issues of life. Consider the routine of daily life. Energy devoted to career pursuits, time spent on social media, resources allocated to various endeavors. What occupies our thoughts and consumes our resources? Are they tied to the enduring values of God's kingdom? Or have we unintentionally become ensnared by the fleeting allure of earthly gain? Dear brethren, we would do well to trust that God's ways are higher. Trust that investing in his kingdom yields lasting rewards. And trust that in prioritizing eternal treasures, our hearts will find their true and enduring fulfillment. Why do we often find ourselves laying up treasures upon earth? Well, it's our natural tendency, of course. It's not that treasures of earth are always evil. They can be very good things, but they hold no lasting value in eternity. In a world that is driven by gratification, instant gratification, our human nature often inclines us towards seeking immediate rewards and tangible achievements. Consider the latest gadgets or fashion trends, the satisfaction of possessing the newest smartphone or trendiest outfit is immediate and tangible. This craving for instant gratification often eclipses the deeper fulfillment that comes from laying up treasures in heaven. Maybe instant gratification isn't that important to you. 
But what about security? Treasuring security. The accumulation of material things can often bring with it a sense of security. We convince ourselves that these possessions provide stability and protection against life's uncertainties. This can lead to a trust in our own abilities and our own resources rather than in God's providence. It's a good reminder today that we have all this food around us. It's a reminder of God's providence. But such earthly treasures and earthly securities are vulnerable to forces beyond our control. And if that's where your treasure is, that's where your heart is also. But maybe you say security is not what you treasure. Maybe it's simply being disconnected to an eternal perspective. In the hustle and bustle of daily life, it's easy to become disconnected from the reality of eternity. The demands of work, family, social expectations can divert our attention from eternity. Perhaps you and I often prioritize the visible and immediate over the unseen and enduring. Understanding our tendencies reminds us that the core to prioritize heavenly treasures is not just a theological concept. It's a counter-cultural pursuit compared to the life goals of today's society. We won't be laying up treasures in heaven by sitting back and doing nothing about it. It requires intentional choices to resist the allure of immediate gratification. It requires us to challenge the norms of our society, recognize the limits of material gain, and realign our hearts and minds with the reality of eternity. In doing so, dear brethren, we are laying aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us. In doing so, dear brethren, we will be running the race before us with patience. And in doing so, we will again be looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. In the Old Testament, in Joshua chapter 7, we read of Achan. Israel has just come off of miraculous victory over the city of Jericho and God has commanded the people to destroy everything in the city. But Achan, in an act of disobedience, takes some of that forbidden plunder and hides it in his tent. Achan's actions remind us that laying up treasures in heaven and having the right priorities, it takes intentional choices. Achan was enticed by the allure of gold and silver. He succumbed to temptation. His actions reveal the consequences of laying up treasures on earth. Just as God had a plan for Israel after the victory at Jericho, God has a plan for you and I. And we need to obey God's word even when societal norms or our personal desires pull us in a different direction. Now here in Matthew chapter 6 verses 22 and 23 are like a transition. He has said, Jesus, that earthly treasures don't last. He said that our hearts and our spiritual health are inherently tied to our treasures. But now, Jesus uses the metaphor of the eye as the light of the body. Verse 22, he says, The light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, that is, 
clearly focused, thy whole body shall be full of light. But if thine eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness? Here the eye represents our perspective, what we focus on and what we value. What you and I focus on impacts our overall spiritual condition. If the eye be single, focused, undivided, if your focus is good, clear, undistracted, then your whole body is full of spiritual light, clarity. But if your eye is evil, if you have a divided or corrupted focus, it will lead to spiritual darkness. See how severe these consequences are, and it's dangerous to live in such a way. Picture a well-lit room where every corner is illuminated by a single undivided light source, a heart singularly focused on heavenly treasures. And now imagine a room in complete darkness. It's disorienting. You don't know where anything is. Earthly treasures are like flickering candles. They may provide momentary warmth and light, but they will fade. They can be extinguished in an instant. This is what Jesus means here. The state of our eyes, our focus, shapes the condition of our entire being. In the clarity of heavenly priorities, there is light, there is understanding. But a distorted focus, a fixation on fleeting treasures, leads to profound darkness. When we talk about pursuing the will of God, we do so prayerfully. We do so with diligence in God's word. We do so in fellowship and in obedience. But when these things are corrupted by an evil eye, we find ourselves unwilling to surrender to God. We'll find ourselves having thoughts of uncertainty that God's will truly is best for our life. We'll start to neglect the scriptures. We'll start to shun obedience, isolate from fellowship. Spiritual darkness is the only outcome of such an attitude of the heart. And then we look at masters in verse 24. No man can serve two masters, for either he'll hate the one and love the other, or else he'll hold to the one and despise the other. He cannot serve God and mammon. Jesus now turns your attention from a warning to a challenge. No man can serve two masters. This is a clear line drawn in the spiritual sand. In this context, mammon refers to wealth or material possessions. It represents the pursuit of worldly goods, the love of money, and the trust placed in material things again, instead of God. So, in this verse, Jesus shows us the impossibility of serving both God and material gain. The term mammon serves as a symbol for wealth and treasures that can distract you from wholeheartedly serving and trusting God. In this, Jesus is urging us to self-examination. What or whom do we serve? The danger lies not only in material things, but allowing any treasure, any priority, to supersede God as the one true master of our hearts. Brethren, let's not dance around it. Jesus is saying no man can serve two masters. It's not just a metaphor. It's a reality check 
for everyone sitting here and listening online. This isn't your neighbor's problem or the person you don't like's problem. It's our problem. Consider this. Have you ever felt the tension between the desire for a bigger paycheck or promotion versus a peaceful night's sleep? That's a clash of masters. When the pursuit of success keeps you burning the midnight oil while prayer meetings are on, masters are contending. When you restlessly pursue the latest gadgets or fashion trends, believing they'll bring happiness, that's the clash of masters. When the craving for more possessions leaves your soul emptier than before, masters are contending. It's not just about big bank accounts or flashy cars, it's the daily choices, the hours spent chasing success or scrolling through media, the moments that you prioritise work over family or accumulate possessions at the expense of peace. It's not they or them, but it's us. Every time we choose the temporary allure of wealth over the enduring riches of God's presence, masters are contending. Let's sit up and take notice. Whose tune are we dancing to? Are we serving God or serving mammon? The clash of masters is real and it's personal. In our everyday choices, may we declare with conviction that God alone is the master of our hearts. Let's turn, if you can, to Matthew chapter 19, verse 16. And we'll read of another account in Jesus' time here on earth. Matthew chapter 19, verse 16. And behold, one came and said unto him, Good master, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? And he said unto him, why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God. But if thou wilt enter into life, keep the commandments. And he said unto him, Which? Jesus said, Thou shalt do no murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, honour thy father and thy mother, and thou shalt love thy neighbour as thyself. The young man saith unto him, All these things have I kept from my youth up. What lack I yet? Jesus said unto him, If thou wilt be perfect, go and sell that thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. This man seemingly had it all. Wealth status, youth. He was in pursuit of eternal life, and yet Jesus in his wisdom knew this man's heart. He knew the true contender to be master in this person's life. In this end, this man struggled to let go of his wealth and fully commit to following Jesus, and he went away sorrowful. This narrative serves as a powerful illustration of the principle that we cannot serve both God and wealth. It emphasizes the importance of surrendering, surrendering our hearts completely to God and acknowledging him as the true master of our lives. Brethren, let's be clear. God delights in blessing us and there's joy in enjoying the good things he provides. But let's also be vigilant 
that these blessings don't take the place in our hearts that belong to God alone. It's about the master of our hearts. May our pursuit of good things, precious blessings, always be secondary to our pursuit of God and his kingdom. God the provider, now we look at verse 25. We've read since Matthew chapter 6, it begins with giving to the needy. It begins with considering prayer. And then Jesus contrasts this with hypocritical displays of such things. Then, tonight, we've read about earthly versus heavenly treasures, how we either serve God or mammon, earthly priorities. What is your treasure? Where do your heart's pursuits lead? And who is your master? Jesus, now in addressing worry, brings these spiritual principles of trust even further. Trusting God is the antidote to serving the wrong master and the worries that plague our lives. Therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life, what ye shall eat, or what ye shall drink, nor yet for your body, what ye shall put on. Is not the life more than meat, and the body than raiment? From verse 25, Jesus tenderly addresses the human tendency towards worry and anxiety, particularly concerning our daily needs. Jesus lovingly describes God's gracious and caring disposition to his children. Firstly, life is more than just the accumulation of needs. Life is more than food and clothing. Philippians 4.19 says, God will supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. This is a profound lesson in trust. Jesus does not dismiss the reality of our physical needs, but rather he encourages us to seek first the kingdom of God. Our Father in heaven, who knows our needs intimately, will provide. God is not just a distant God. God is a near, caring, attentive provider. Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are ye not much better than they? He doesn't just command, he explains. God cares for all creation. Look at the birds, simple, unassuming creatures, yet God ensures they're fed. The lilies, they don't toil, they don't spin or stress about a wardrobe, yet Solomon in all his glory wasn't clothed like these lilies. Let this sink in, dear brethren. Jesus points to birds and flowers. He reminds us that God's provision isn't just for the extraordinary, it's for the everyday. If God can take care of the smallest, seemingly not significant details in nature, how much more will he care for you, a masterpiece created in his own image? And this is not a call to laziness. It's an invitation to trust. Note here that birds, they don't worry, but they do work. Birds don't sit with open mouths expecting God to fill them. They too search for food. They too build nests. Some even migrate during colder months. Are ye not much better than they? The worry many people have over the material things of life 
is rooted in an understanding of their value before God. Perhaps we may not comprehend fully how much God loves and cares for us. Remember how you began your walk with God as a Christian? Romans 8.32 He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? The God who provided the greatest gift in giving his son for our redemption is more than capable of providing for our daily needs. When the bills pile up and the future seems uncertain, Psalm 37.25 says, I have been young and now am old, yet have I not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging bread. God's faithfulness endures. Let us find comfort in these words. In a world often fraught with uncertainties, Jesus reminds us of the God who provides. Dear brethren, if only we would reflect more on the intricacies of God's creation and the assurance that if he cares for the smallest details, he surely cares for you. In every trial, in every need, rest assured that the God who provides, who clothes the lilies, feeds the birds, is intimately concerned with your well-being. Trust in his provision, for you are deeply loved and cared for by the God who provides abundantly. Thirdly, worry changes nothing. Verse 27, which of you by taking thought can add one cubit unto his stature? And why take ye thought for raiment? Consider the simplicities of nature, the beautiful lilies that grow in the wild, the grass of the field that grows and dies. There may be greater sins than worry, but there are none more self-defeating and useless. Indeed, instead of adding to our life, we can even harm ourselves with worry. Worry cannot add a single minute to your life. Worry cannot add a single dollar to your account. Worry cannot add a single point to your average uni marks. Worry cannot impress your boss. Worry can damage your relationships. Worry can rob you of joy. Worry can rob you of opportunities. It cannot add to your life. In verse 32, we read of the Gentiles, or the meaning is pagans who don't believe in Christ. They seek after these things, since they are godless. But your Father knows your needs, so that you do not need to seek after them. And we come to verse 33. Seek ye first, or prioritize, God's kingdom and his righteousness above all else above all else, and all these things shall be added unto you. What a blessing, what a promise. Ask yourself, what is most pleasing to God? What will best impact the world with the gospel? What will best reflect his righteousness? To seek God's kingdom first is not merely a reordering of our to-do list. It's not right to think that seeking the kingdom of God is just another bullet point on a very long list, even if it is the one at the top. Seeking God's kingdom first is a commitment to align our desires, decisions, daily pursuits with the eternal values of his kingdom. It's a recognition that our ultimate fulfillment and provision comes from walking in righteousness and pursuing God's purposes. 
in everything we do, we should seek first the kingdom of God. On the surface, regular family dinners and outings are very good, but intentionally using these moments with discussions about faith and service and time around his word is to seek God's kingdom first. That's where the focus of the heart is while doing this, laying up for yourselves treasures in heaven. On the surface, maintaining a healthy lifestyle is good, but recognizing that the body is God's temple and treating it with care is seeking God's kingdom first. That's where the focus of the heart is while doing this. On the surface, pursuing academic or career success is good, but viewing education as a means to equip yourself for the greater gospel impact and greater gospel opportunities and greater means to serve others, that's seeking God's kingdom first. On the surface, working hard is good, but seeking the kingdom at work means going beyond professional success. It involves demonstrating integrity, honesty and kindness in our interactions. It means approaching our tasks with excellence as an act of worship, understanding that our work is a means to reflect God's character and influence others positively. Perhaps invite gospel questions, curiosity, perhaps prompting a conversation about the gospel and your testimony. That is putting God's kingdom first. Even in our leisure activities, seeking the kingdom means being intentional about what we consume. Whether it's movies or literature or music or whatever we choose, entertainment that aligns with God's values. It involves discernment in what we allow to shape our thoughts and emotions. And when God becomes the centre of our lives, it won't just affect what we do. It'll affect what we become. It'll affect our motivations and our thoughts. Romans 12 says, And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The challenge then is before us, brethren. Let us examine our daily pursuits and priorities. Are we seeking God's kingdom first or have earthly concerns subtly taken precedence. This is more than a call to religious duty. It's an invitation to a vibrant, purpose-filled life where God is our anchor and guide. Let us embrace the transforming power of the gospel, seeking God's kingdom first above all else. Let us lay up treasures in heaven, and in doing so, may we discover joy, provision, purpose. Consider Colossians chapter 3. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. In verse 34, we read of trust. Before we've read that earthly treasures lack eternal value, and that our pursuits reveal the condition of our hearts. We've read that our heart's focus and its treasures will lead to either spiritual light or spiritual darkness. To have clarity of focus on God is to have clarity of focus on God's will. We've read that serving two masters is impossible. Idolizing material gains will lead to spiritual danger. 
we've learnt that we should not worry about daily needs. God's provision is evident in nature, so trust in his loving care. We've read, we've been commanded lovingly to seek first the kingdom of God. But here in the closing words of this chapter, Jesus says not to worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Jesus is urging you and I to have unwavering trust in God. He's calling us to relinquish the burdens of tomorrow and find peace right now, knowing that our Heavenly Father holds the future in his capable hands. To live without worry about the uncertainties of tomorrow is not an invitation to discard our responsibilities, but it's a challenge to trust. How do we practically overcome anxiety and stress through trust? First, acknowledge that worrying about the future does not add a single moment or single gain to our lives. Instead, focus on the steps you can take today to follow and obey God's will. Consider the lilies of the field, birds of the air, Jesus says. They neither toil nor worry, yet God cares for them. Our trust becomes a testimony of God's faithfulness in the unfolding of his plan. When we stop worrying about tomorrow and stop burdening ourselves with excessive concerns about the future, brethren, then will we be acknowledging that our life is in God's hands. And then we will be understanding that surrender and trust is a lifelong journey. Jim Elliot, as I said before, he also, he also said this, and I quote, We should remember that while knowledge may, may look big for one, it's only love that makes him grow into his full stature. Whatever a man may know, he still has a lot to learn. But if he loves God, he is opening his whole life to the Spirit of God. We do not surrender our entire life in one instant. That which is lifelong can only be surrendered in a lifetime. Neither does surrender to God's will always equal fullness of power. Maturity is the accomplishment of years. And I can only surrender to the will of God as I know what that is. So, the fullness of the Spirit is not instantaneous, but ultimately is progressive. If men and women were truly filled with the Holy Spirit, they should not write books about it but they would major on the person the Spirit has come to reveal. Occupation with Christ is God's objective. Brethren, as we conclude, I extend a challenge to those who have yet to believe on Jesus Christ to be their saviour from sin. The treasures of heaven, the peace that surpasses understanding, the purpose found in God's kingdom are offered to you today the secure promise of eternity with Jesus, and a soul reconciled with God because of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection is a gift from God to you today. Surrender and trust in the one who holds your past, your present, and your future. And to those who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus, I urge you and I to examine the condition of our hearts. Are the treasures of heaven our priority? Or have earthly pursuits taken precedence? Is God truly the master of your heart? Let the call to trust and surrender be a renewal of spirit 
for those who have grown weary in this life. Revival begins with a humble acknowledgement of our need for God's transforming power. May our lives be a testament to the enduring truths found in his word. Therefore take no thought, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? But your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Jim Elliot, the missionary, penned his thoughts on the very purpose of his testimony. Lord, make my way prosperous, not that I might achieve high station, but that my life may be an exhibit to the value of knowing God. I pray that this would be our desire of our hearts tonight. Amen.